the National Archives podcast series, A Bag of Secrets, Working with Tudor Records, presented by Dr. Tracy Sowerby and introduced by Joe Pugh. So before you hear a portion of uh, Dr. Sowerby's recent session on Tudor documents that was delivered as part of our A-Level Masterclass, um, it seemed like it might be helpful to spend a few minutes looking generally at what the National Archives holds from the Tudor period and how the records are arranged. The most important thing you need to know is that records here are not arranged by subject, like in a library. They're mostly arranged by whatever part of the government or legal system produced them. So, for example, if you wanted to look at the records of the Court of the King's Bench, the principal law court in this period, based in Westminster Hall, those are all collected together here in a class of records called KB, King's Bench. So if you type into our online catalogue KB8 forward slash 4, you get the indictment for treason of Empton Dudley and the seventh debt collectors. Now, Dr. Salvi will talk through these documents in much more detail, but very, very broadly, they break down to, into four types. First, you have what are rather vaguely called state papers. These are bound volumes of documents collected and arranged in chronological order in the 19th century and dealing with the reign of Henry VIII onwards. And they come in four types, domestic, dealing with England and Wales, state papers foreign, dealing with what we might call abroad, and then there are separate volumes covering Ireland and also Scotland. And they bring together a fascinating variety of government records together with, frankly, odds and ends. You could be reading correspondence for an ambassador in a volume of state papers foreign and turn the page and find a poem or a recipe. And these papers have been used extensively by just about any historian uh, you can think of, and they're getting easier and easier to look at, either through printed copies or summaries called calendars, or through state papers online, which your school might have access to or which can be searched here at the archives. Now next, you have the records of the Privy Council with the code, reasonably logically, PC. And these are very incomplete here, but we do hold useful records after 1540 in the PC2 series. And then thirdly, there are court records like those from the Court of Requests at King's Bench and KB or Star Chamber in STAC, Stack. Um, And finally, you have the records of the great departments of early English government, the Exchequer and the Chancery. Um, two classes, E and C. Now, there's a whole range of useful information in those. For example, um, E315 from the Exchequer contains records from the Court of Augmentations. C65 from the Chancery contains Parliament rolls, long lists of acts passed in Parliament. And it's one of those rolls that's the first document uh, Dr. Sorby will discuss. So, I wanted to start with um, some of the records of Parliament. Um, so, this is a Parliament roll from 25 Henry VIII. Uh, which contains numerous different sorts of acts. So these range from acts concerning regulations for um, graziers and provision of victuals through to one of the acts that we're going to look at in a minute, which is an act for the submission of the clergy. So firstly, to talk you through why it's where it is in the National Archive. So it's actually in the Chancery class rather than the class of documents that's separate for Parliament. Um, and that's because roles made by the Clerk of the Parliament, um, and he is meant to deposit them in the Chancery Archive in Chancery Lane, which is called the Rolls Chapel. They're meant to be kept there for as long as they're useful, and then once they get out of date and are no longer useful for reference, they're meant to be transferred to the Tower of London. Actually, for the Tudor Parliament roles, they aren't transferred. Um, there's a complaint in the 1560s that all of the old roles of Parliament um, from the 1480s are still in Chancery Lane, and all of the post-1484 roles stay in Chancery Lane and never get transferred across, which tells you something about state archiving 
<laughs> in its nascent form in the 16th century. They, in the 15th century, represent the business as conducted in Parliament. So the late medieval roles break down into different sections. The opening section concerns the opening session of Parliament, speeches, sermons, etc. Then it gets into the nitty-gritty of business, and it'll even sometimes record the texts of debates that happen. By the time you get to the 1530s, when this role is compiled, you're no longer getting the Parliament role as a record of parliamentary business. It actually becomes a record of statutes that become enrolled. So, if you like, um, those that become law. Another difference between this role and some of the late medieval parliament roles is that you won't get records of any acts that are vetoed by the king, whereas they're still included in even as late as some of the 1480s and 1490s roles. From 1484, the statutes of the realm are also printed, um, and sometimes by more than one printer, more than one edition. The history of how the printed acts relates to the parliament rolls is a little bit complicated. It's not always directly the s or exactly the same, um, but there is quite a good correspondence, and there's a few trends that are happening between the late 15th and the early 16th century. The vast majority of the printed statutes don't include the section for business, and none of the later ones do. Increasingly, they stop including um, what we call private acts, so acts which start as private petitions rather than acts which are initiated by the Crown. Where they are on the roll, increasingly from um, the early 16th century, they're actually on the back of the roll rather than the front of the roll. And when they're printed, you just get the kind of public acts at the front and private acts from 1540 you rarely see printed. Um, so to look at this role as a record of the Parliament, first and foremost it's a record of which acts are passed by that Parliament and become enacted as law. You can pick up some things which are happening in Parliament still, even if it's not a record of business. One of the problems that anyone working on Henry VIII's Parliament has is that we don't have Commons journals, which give us really detailed records of what the debates are. And the Lord's journals are pretty sparse. Um, so it will think, say things like, you know, X act, no one um, objects. And that's all you know about what's happened at the third reading or whatever it happens to be. So where you tend to get up hints that an act has been changed during its passage through Parliament is where you get provisos in. Usually it's pretty obvious in the role itself, you know, provided, also provided in really large letters, so there's no chance of missing it. Historians tend not to use the rolls because the printer copies are so good, but I think it's always worth doing it because a friend of mine who works on Henry VII's Parliament has found a few slight differences. So, to the submission of the clergy, one of the things that I wanted to point out uh, with this is that... It's pretty straightforward. You, if you stood here, you could follow the text pretty much verbatim all the way through. One of the things that is increasingly happening in Henry VIII's reign, and this act shows quite nicely, is that the preambles to acts, so this first section here, are being used to make a case for what's happening, and they're increasingly polemical, rather <coughs> than just being a straightforward recitation of what the law is. You get the explanation for why what has been passed through Parliament has been passed through Parliament. 
that becomes important because a lot of these acts actually get printed separately as broadsides and distributed across the country. So you can effectively use an individual act of parliament as a piece of propaganda. I talked a little bit earlier about the difference between public and private acts, which might seem pretty straightforward. It might seem like, well, you know, if you're the Earl of Huntington, you initiate a private act and it gets passed and it doesn't end up on the printed statute book. Some acts, unfortunately, blur the line quite a lot. So there's an act in 1540 for a peacetime subsidy, which counts as a private act and doesn't get printed on the statute books. Okay, so I mean, if you wanted to call one of these up and have a look, then what you need to do is you can go onto something like State Papers Online or Letters and Papers Henry VIII, and you can find a list like this, which gives you all of the acts which are passed by the Parliament. It tells you which chapter they are, which is the um, C1, C2, etc. in brackets afterwards. So I put them in the order in which they, they count. However, it's the number on the left-hand side that tells you where on the roll it is. So can you see there's mm -hmm. a number here? And so basically, when you get one of these things, you unroll it until you find the number that you're expecting to find. They can be a little bit tricky to find. You need to know the regnal year in order to order them up. Um, but if anybody wants to see them, they're all in C65. And for what it's worth, for any of the medieval parliament rolls that you might be interested in, there's an online database and it's oh, all okay. digitized now, yeah. which is fantastic. So the next document I want to talk to you about is actually a King's Bench document from what's called the Barga de Secretis, or Bag of Secrets. This relates to the Exeter Conspiracy of 1538, which is an alleged plot against Henry VIII by a number of his very prominent courtiers and lifelong companions in his privy chamber. There are three separate sections, um, of which this is parts two and three that we're going to have a look at. So the first one is looking at a group of noblemen who are connected to Reginald Pole, a scholar on the continent and distant relative of Henry VIII, who writes a very scathing attack on Henry VIII's break with Rome in 1536. Some of the people who are in the first section are some of Reginald Pole's brothers, and one of his brothers, Jeffreys, um, various clients, including a number of clerks and chaplains. This section that we're going to look at looks at another brother of Reginald Pole's Henry and another family, um, the um, family of the Marquis of Exeter. They're alleged to have conspired to overthrow the king. And the context to all of this is that in 1537 and 1539, Reginald Pole heads a papal legation to persuade Francis I of France and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, to join together and invade England and restore Catholicism. So this is in between those two missions. In 1534, Henry VIII passes an act making treason by, well, words treason effectively. So if you say that you imagine the king's death or that you want the king dead, and you ha there are two people who will swear to that, then you are now guilty of treason. There are allegations in these files that people like Henry Pole, Lord Montague, and Geoffrey Pole, and the Marquis of Exeter have been 
conspiring to raise an army against the king, but the vast majority of the accusations are that they've, you know, um, I've got it written down somewhere in case I couldn't remember it. I trust I have a fair day over these knaves that rule about the king. I had a dream that the king was dead of his legs. Henry's you know, recently hurt his leg and it's gone septic. So it's not things that we would necessarily consider treasonous, but they say them a lot. They tend to say them when they're together, when they're drunk. They burn some letters, which is taken as you know, proof that there was more serious correspondence between um, the Poles and the Courtenays in England and the Reginald Pole on the continent. And at the very least, they do seem to have been in contact with their brother and their mother has been as well. Although quite what their correspondence seems to have contained, we're not sure. What also seems to be the case is that at least one of them has been contemplating going to the continent to help Pole on this, like, his kind of quest to get people to invade England. They've also said some very, very unfortunate things about the big rebellion in the northeast, the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, like they think it should have aimed at Henry VIII and not Cromwell, and isn't it a shame it hasn't been successful? The vast majority of the text in here is in Latin, um, and I'm not going to attempt to read it out for you. But in order for this to be a valid legal document, anything that the traitors said has to be recorded in the language in which they said it. Um, so it has to be recorded in English. Another legal peculiarity of the Court of King's Bench, um, where this document was um, created, is that if there are any grammatical mistakes in the Latin, then that can be used as a, a reason not to accept the document as a valid legal document. So particularly with some of the local um, King's Bench courts, you do get verdicts overturned or documents rejected simply because um, the client notices that there are or the lawyer notices that there are legal sorry technical inaccuracies in the grammar of the document here we've got a, a copy of the inquisitions that have happened in the counties where the offenses are alleged to have taken place as well as a record of the trial and one of the reasons why I got interested in the Exeter Conspiracy is because everybody thinks that, well, not everybody, but a lot of historians think it's made up and that Henry just does it to get rid of the remnants of the Yorkist faction who might make a, a bid for his throne should he be overthrown. And the person I wrote my doctorate on, Richard Morrison, writes one of the propaganda tracts um, against the <coughs> Exeter Conspiracy. So everyone thinks that he kind of makes the whole story up. The problem being, that when you compare the text of the Invective Against Treason tract that he wrote with what they're alleged to have said in these records, you find pretty accurate correspondence. There's the odd word out of place, and occasionally you get you know, two things that were maybe said on separate occasions strung together in the text. But actually, it's a fairly accurate rendering of what's in this document. So if it is a state construct, then it's a state construct that happens when all of the inquisitions are taking place, rather than something that the propagandists then go on and spin. You can open it up, you can see all of the depositions. And you can also see one of the original seals. At, at this stage, were, the, were these court records made public at all? Or? No. Um, I mean, especially not, especially not this one. Um, there's a series of documents in KB8, KB8 which are essentially state trials. Um, some of them get published in the 18th century, um, but especially the more sensitive ones. So one of the 
documents almost immediately preceding this in the archive is the trial of Anne Boleyn. Not the trial of Anne Boleyn, what they're talking about. Um, that was destroyed, sorry. It should have been there, but it's not. Um, but it's um, really high-profile cases that make it into the Bargard Secretus, um, rather than some of the more standard treason cases, which would be in probably KB9, which is a separate class of documents. And they would be kind of kept separately. Um, one of the later documents in this series is the trial of um, Thomas Wyatt, who raises a rebellion against Mary Tudor. So now for a very different sort of King's Bench record, and part of this is decorative. This is a different class of King's Bench document, which is from a Coram Regge roll. It gets its name from the idea that the case are actually heard in the presence of the king, but actually they're not by this point, and they haven't been for quite some time. So this is the main reason that I wanted to order it up, um, because each one of these files originally had this beautiful historiated initial with a portrait of the king. And you can see the image of the king changing across the reign and mapping quite closely onto some of the official portraits in terms of the facial features. The actual cases which are in here are heard in um, local courts, um, and that's where the um, delivery of jail happens as well. What you can actually get from this is kind of local business which happens in a given law term, rather than kind of any sense of what the King's Court Bench Central is doing on a regular basis to actually hear cases. As a source, in the difficulties for a lot of people using them is that they're in quite formulaic Latin, so you have to get used to the particular um, form of Latin that King's Bench is using. The good news, if you ever have to do it, is that actually there are stock phrases and there are stock abbreviations. Um, because the particular crimes that you're looking at um, tend to be quite standardised, the phrases kind of map quite nicely onto what you have to have done to commit that crime. So once you know what you're looking for and you know what those phrases are, you can pretty easily figure out who, you know, who's supposed to have done what and where, um, and a lot of the law records for this period are, are quite similar. So you get quite a lot of star chamber cases where the person is alleged to have um, assembled a riotous assembly um, because that's one of the things that you need in order to get your case heard before star chamber, rather than because that's what actually happened when there were only probably two of them there. So, now to go and move on to some sorts of documents that you might consider to be more like state papers. So, the first thing that's worth saying is that for the 16th century, there really isn't this official division between a state bureaucrat's state archive and their personal archive. So, a lot of the state papers for the 16th century are actually kept in the hands of people like William Cecil and other chief ministers. And that's why a lot of them are at Hatfield House. It's how a lot of them find their way into the British Library. Um, so what we have here is not a complete record by any stretch of the imagination. There's also differences in how the material here is ranged across the 16th century. So for Henry VIII's reign, a lot of the papers were reorganized in the 19th century. And they're organized roughly chronologically. The vast majority of them are in State Papers 1 and they cover both state papers domestic and state papers foreign. Whereas from Edward VI, state papers foreign and state papers domestic are kept separately. 
State Papers Foreign was also rearranged in part in the 19th century uh, chronologically and all of the, the countries were kept together. So that is the, the case up to 1577. After 1577 you get individual class marks and volumes for each country. The sorts of things that you get are, this is a volume of State Papers Foreign France. It's in roughly chronological order. You can see there's, just looking through it, there's a number of different people who have been sending in reports. Quite a lot of them are in the same hand simply because we have a resident ambassador in France at the point where this volume is put together. A whole different range of languages, quite a lot of French, quite a bit of English, quite a lot of Latin, um, and if memory serves, there's the odd bit of Italian in here as well. And basically, each individual document that's bound in, which is anything from 1 to 20 sides long, is either a set of instructions, notes on instructions or letters, or it's instructions out from the Privy Council to ambassadors. You also get letters that have been received by one of the Secretaries of State from um, English merchants in France, English agents, whether or not they're English or French or Italian. The range of material that's included in these letters um, is quite broad actually. So on the one hand you get a sense of what state policy might be. You've got to be a little bit careful because sometimes what ambassadors are told to do um, in the official instructions isn't what they're actually told to do and they get secret instructions alongside it which are either delivered verbally or which are delivered in a letter that they're then meant to destroy. You also get a sense of what happens in audiences between ambassadors and foreign princes because usually if they've said anything they'll have to say in quite some detail what they've said just in case there's anything controversial in it. Ambassadors quite often have to mediate any trade disputes um, or bigger issues arising over trade disputes to get information about that. More surprisingly you quite often get information and it tends to be towards the end of the letter and in letters that they might consider more private rather than official letters back about who they've been meeting up with, what sorts of things they've been discussing, whether or not they've been buying anything. There are actually some of the ambassadors who are in France, like Sir Nicholas Throckmorton, who are specifically instructed to do things like buy jewellery for the Queen while they're there. Another different type of diplomatic state paper is this. If you like, that's what the state side of the correspondence looks like. This is what the ambassador's side might look like in terms of his record. So this is the letterbook of John Mason, who is a resident ambassador in France for Edward VI. And what you get here is his copy, not only of all of the instructions that he's been sent, but also any letters that he's sent back to the King and Council, or later the Queen and Council. So you'll note that most of it's in the same hand. It's pretty continuous. It's very neat. It's an official copy. The sorts of documents that you get, two and a half pages copied out, and then a list of the Privy Councillors who sent the letter to him. There aren't very many of these sorts of letter books that are left. There's a couple in the British Library um, for one of the resident ambassadors in Venice. 
and a much scrappier looking one than this for one of Edward VI ambassadors in Germany. But for the most part, these volumes either kind of kept, were kept by the ambassador and they're in private collections or they've been dispersed or they simply haven't survived. Or they've been broken up and arranged in chronological order and we don't necessarily know what they would have looked like anymore. Another type of state paper again. So this is from State Papers Theological, SP6. And this is a completely artificial class. Again, it's put together in the 19th century. These papers, the vast majority of them, don't actually have that much to do with one another. Most of what's in SP6 relates to the theological determinations of the 1530s. So if anybody wants to do anything on the Bishop's Book of 1537, you can get a lot of information about what people thought on various doctrinal matters through looking at some of these SP6 volumes. And you can also see some of the early drafts of the Bishop's Book. Um, that are here. There's also a lot of sermons across the 13 volumes, some of which really don't have a date, some of which we don't know who wrote them. There's translations of continental theological tracts, original theological tracts from England. There's also the occasional couple of folios on other material. So in some of these volumes, there's like, a, a couple of folios which seem to be early drafts of propaganda tracts. In one of the volumes, there's an apple pie recipe. There's really no real logic to what's in them as far as I can make out. So to look at this one volume, so it starts with a translation of a Lutheran text on um, the um, Psalm 127, and it's a rather neat English translation. So far, so good. And that's all by the same person although we don't know who by. Then, a couple of quite scrappy notes in a mixture of um, Greek and Latin, just for a page. Then the same person has written a rather long, and trust me, not terribly interesting treatise on covetousness in Latin, which uses a lot of theological and classical references. And as you go through the volume, you get other items by a whole host of different people. And although you, you do see sections like the second and third item which belong together, the vast majority of, of the book, as I say, doesn't really have much correspondence or there be any real logic to why it's put together. There are two main types of handwriting that you'll see in a lot of these tracts and letters. Um, so there's like this first one, which is pretty standard secretary hand. But you also see more italic forms of hands, especially among humanists. And some of these, although they should be easier to read and they get easier to read once italic hand becomes more common in the 17th century, actually this one is an absolute mess. It's, it's really not very easy. I'd be impressed if anyone can make out many words on this. Mm -hmm. um, but if anybody is interested in doing um, paleography, then they're actually very good online tutorials that you can do. The National Archives has one and the Cambridge English faculty has one as well. So, completely different type of state paper again. This one isn't catalogued as a state paper. This one is catalogued as part of the Exchequer documents. And it forms part of Thomas Cromwell's archive. 
So some of Cromwell's papers have been split up and are now in State Papers 1. Some of them are still separate, and the reason why they're in the Exchequer is because when somebody is accused of treason and has their goods seized, it's the Exchequer that their goods get deposited in. So there's quite a number of volumes like this in Exchequer. Some of the seized traitors or accused traitors papers actually have um, separate document classes now. So, for instance, um, the papers of Arthur Plantagenet, Lord Lyle, who's accused of treason in 1540, um, they're in, I think it's SP3. Um, historians tend to look at the really quite good printed edition of them now rather than the originals. So, what sorts of papers did Cromwell have? This is actually catalogued as a selection of papers relating to the Pilgrimage of Grace. And as far as I can make out, hardly any of them have anything to do with the Pilgrimage of Grace. It's material that was used quite extensively by Geoffrey Elton in Policy and Police. So it's quite a lot of people writing to Cromwell to complain that people aren't quite doing what they should be, um, particularly when it comes to respecting the king or his new religious policies. But there's a few pieces of earlier information which probably relate to when Cromwell was working for Thomas Wolsey. Um, the first item, which is this one, is an account of Anthony Dalibor, who is caught up in the Oxford heresy cases in 1528. Of particular pertinence today because one of the places where some of these Lutherans bury their books is under the floor in Broadgates Hall. This document gives an account of how Thomas Garrett, who's accused of corrupting the local students in Oxford by claiming that he wants Greek tuition and then actually making them read the Bible with him and then some Lutheran books, tries to flee Oxford after he's been arrested um, and his capture. And it gives some sense of what happens after the group of heretics has been identified. So we know who about 12 of them are, but we know that there's a relatively large group. And Wolsey tries to protect some of the younger scholars if they will recant and return to the fold. So although we have strong suspicions about who a lot of these people are, we don't know for certain. And part of it's explained by some of Dalibor's account, which actually says that the um, younger scholars for mercy were not named by the church and were not named by um, the university when it's proceeding against them. And that probably helps to explain why we have no idea who they are now. Part of this narrative gets taken up and printed by John Fox in the Acts and Monuments in his account of Thomas Garrett and the Oxford heretics, some of whom die in the um, fish cellar of Christ, well, what is now Christchurch College, um, but most of whom go on and recant. And some people like Thomas Garrett get picked up for heresy later on, so he's executed um, in 1540. But the vast majority of these people don't tend to get themselves into that degree of trouble. So that's an early example. To take a later example, this is a complaint against a man called Richard Bush, who is a parish clerk in Hastings. And it dates to 1539, late, I think it's October 1539. So he is accused of saying that no one should be allowed to read English scripture and that English Bible should be burnt, which 10 years ago probably wouldn't have been that controversial. 
But in 1536, Cromwell's injunctions say that every English church needs to have a copy of the English Bible, and the 1538 injunctions say that anyone can read scripture individually in English. Where it gets a bit more complicated and where this sort of material can be quite interesting in looking at responses to the Reformation, responses to religious orders, and if you like a sense <coughs> of popular politics, is the reasons why Bush says that he actually objects. He doesn't say, well, he claims he didn't say that you shouldn't have English scripture. He claims that the precise copy of scripture that they have in St. Clements and Hastings is the wrong one. So in doing that, he actually shows a really good knowledge of the Act of Six Articles. Um, so he could recite a passage from the marginalia in this Bible, which encouraged clerical marriage, which is against the Act of Six Articles. And he also shows an awareness of the proclamations, which say that English Bibles shouldn't have polemical marginalia in at all. You also get quite a good sense of the way in which people are engaging with print and the official line in this other case, which is a case of a man called John Vigorous in Langham. And he gets almost an entire village writing to Cromwell to complain against him. He does some quite provocative things. So he sees two women reading an English primer in a church and basically throws them out of church, calling them errant whores, even though they're well known in Langham for their piety and chastity because he doesn't think anybody should be reading English primers. And he objects to a lot of the reading material of the people in the village. They, in their defense, say, but we should be allowed to read all of this material because it's printed come privilego regali, or with the king's privilege. And that means it's got official endorsement. Unfortunately for the villagers of Langham, come privilego regali actually is a sign of copyright, and it's not an official um, stamp of approval, and it's not used in that way until after November 1538. But it does show that people are misinterpreting what's printed. And then it gets really interesting if you start to look at what is printed come privilegio regali. So you get some Lutheran sermons, and you get other tracts from other reformers or influenced by other reformers, which Henry would most certainly not approve of. And it might be one of the reasons why evangelicals are quite hopeful in the 1530s, because they might think that some of the material that they really want to see printed that is being printed is actually officially endorsed, and it isn't. And for what it's worth, it's not just people in Langham who are misapprehending or misunderstanding what this phrase means. Richard Grafton, who actually prints um, the English Bible in Paris, also thinks that come privilegio regali should imply official endorsement and not just a privilege. And Cranmer and Cromwell defend the right of anybody who's reading privilegio books even before November 1538 uh, because they see it's an affront to the king's majesty if you're being challenged on reading this phrase. And there's quite a lot of cases like that in here. Or should we move on and look at some financial records? Okay, we'll start with the slightly more straightforward one. So this is pretty straightforward Cheetah household accounts. In the Exchequer, um, this was originally part of the Court of Augmentations, which is set up to deal with the extra land and revenues coming in after the dissolution of the monasteries, but that's merged back into Exchequer in Mary's reign. So the class mark is Exchequer for this material. And it's pretty straightforward. It's things like payments of annuities, who gets what, how much. It's you know, any fees that are owed by the Crown, 
you can see coming out. And more unusually, at the very end, you get a short list of some of the monastic plate that's come into crown hands as a result of the dissolution. Pretty straightforward to use something like that. Where some of the financial records can get more interesting and more revealing for political historians rather than just figuring out payments is volumes like this one, which is the records of Anthony Denny, who was Keeper of the Palace of Westminster in the latter years of Henry VIII. In amidst records of payments, you also get inventories of some of Henry's goods. This is taken from his records of his picture collection in Westminster. And one of the things that comes across really clearly if you read through is there's a, a mixture of secular and religious imagery. So on the one hand, you have a table of Our Lady and St. Anne and the um, husbands and kindred. On the other hand, you have quite a lot of allegorical pictures, so the, the history of Christiana. You also get some mentions of statues and alabaster. so there's an alabaster here of um, St. John the Evangelist. And there's an awful lot of pictures of other European leaders and other members of the Tudor dynasty and its antecedents. Some of the identifiable, or probably identifiable, pictures in here are things like Holbein's Christina of Denmark. There's pictures of Charles V, there's pictures of Francis I, um, there's pictures of some of the royal family um, like Edward IV, who you might not necessarily think would be displayed in a Tudor palace. There's um, pictures of Henry's brother Arthur and his mother Queen Elizabeth. There's also some rather more interesting imagery. There's a picture of four evangelists stoning the Pope. And if I can find it, I've got a particular favorite. So one table, by which it means picture, with the picture of the King, His Highness, standing upon a mitre within three crowns, having a serpent with seven heads going out of it, having a sword in his hand wherein is written verbum die. So this is Henry VIII standing on the Antichrist um, serpent of Rome, the Pope, who he is smiting with a sword and the word of God. And we don't have that image, sadly, anymore. And quite a lot of the items which are in here are only described very briefly. So we might not be able to link them up to specific images. And that's the case, particularly with things like the royal plate, where actually the person who's inventorying it usually only mentions decoration to distinguish it from other pieces of plate. And what they're most interested in is what the metal content and the value of the plate is. That sort of material can actually be much more frustrating to use than some of the material describing pictures, because by its nature it has to say a little bit more. One of the things I also like about that is that you um, have physiognomies of Henry VIII and some of the other members of the royal family as well, which I think is fantastic. And later on in the book, you get a list of some of Henry VIII's books. And these are listed alphabetically, um, rather than the way in which they're shelved, and that tends to be the case for a lot of um, early modern library catalogues before the 17th century. Are the portraits themselves still in a royal collection? Some of them are, not all of them. There's some of the pictures of Henry VIII in here, which are almost certainly some of the pictures that you see in places like Hampton Court. There's some of the pictures in there which simply don't exist anymore. And some of them are dispersed as well. Anyway, as with some of the descriptions of the play or some of the descriptions of the pictures, 
quite often you don't get that much information um, to figure out what the book is. So Adagio Rasmi is pretty straightforward. It's Erasmus' Adagios. Um, Assertio Regis, you can probably guess, is Henry VIII's book, um, the Assertio Septum Sacramentorum. Whereas Biblia in five volumes, it's a bit more difficult to figure out which particular edition of the Bible that might be, and that could actually be very significant. Um, so quite often you can get a sense of what the title is, but no more specifics that would allow you to um, take the analysis that bit further. This event was recorded live in September 2009 as part of the National Archives A-Level Masterclass Series. This podcast is copyright the National Archives.